This episode of Arizona Spotlight is supported by Broadway in Tucson. For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up. In a copper mining town in neighboring Sonora, Mexico, there's a bowling alley where people have been enjoying the sport and the atmosphere for almost 100 years. Visit the Sierra Vista Open Mic Night at the Urbano Coffee Shop, located on Highway 92. A new book celebrates the detailed charcoal work of artist Michael Moore. He'll share autobiographical notes about finding happiness as a working artist. And a closer look at the legacy of entertainer Nichelle Nichols from Star Trek. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. The mining city of Cananea in northern Sonora is no stranger to history. Not far from an entrance to its massive and still-running copper mine, a bowling alley has been in continuous use for nearly a century. From Fronteras, KJZZ's Murphy Woodhouse will take us there. With the push of a button, the bowling lane machine lurches forward, leaving behind a striking sheen. Keeping his balance on the narrow strip between the four lanes gutters, Gerardo Alonso Vasquez follows along and reverses the device's course when it nears the pins. These lanes are all original wood, he says, not the synthetic surfaces you'll find at many modern bowling alleys. Leaders of the Circulo Social Anahuac, the private club that owns the more than century-old building, didn't have an exact date for the alley's construction. But the wall of championship bowling plaques provides a baseline. For the 1937-38 series, a man named Isidro Escobosa came out on top. In a bit of wry humor, COVID-19 is honored as the 2020 champion. The reigning champ is Vasquez himself, the man tasked with keeping the lanes in top shape. He gets to apply the oil just the way he likes, and some say that gives him an edge. Lanes shining, players start warming up for the evening's mixed league play. Instead of mechanical pin setters, teenagers Francisco Cruz and Manuel Moreno are perched above the pit, ready to leap into action when the bowling balls come crashing through. Moreno started recently and says his regular exercise routine helped him prepare for the demanding gig. For several hours, the two repeatedly jump down into the pit, send the balls rolling back, replace the pins in a flash, and spring back up for a few seconds rest. It's work for certain, he says, but exercise at the same time, a nice two-for-one deal. It's also a job that has essentially disappeared. Cruz says the two have searched online for evidence of other Pineros active in Mexico and didn't turn up much. The thought of being among the last of an all-but-vanished profession brings him a certain pride. Club leaders say the alley's arrival is tied to the sizable presence of well-heeled Americans during the early 20th century company town days of Cananea, when William Cornell Green's consolidated copper company dominated daily life. Principalmente, todo el club se maneja 
y vive gracias al boliche. Bowling is the lifeblood of the club, says board president Fabián Ramos, and it's dues from members that make the expensive upkeep of the aging building and lanes possible. But from highs of four or five hundred, membership has fallen to around 90, he says, and those that remain skew older, with an average age of well over 60. Ramos says he and others are now trying to reverse that downward trend by recruiting more, and especially younger members. Failing to do so, he says, put the future of the historic lanes in jeopardy. 29-year-old Marisol Tade rolls a strike and walks back to her seat, high-fiving teammates on the way. These days, she bowls a respectable 156 average, but at first was pretty skeptical about the sport. After turning down several invitations from a friend, she eventually relented and gave bowling a shot. She quickly came to appreciate the skills necessary to excel and took it on as a challenge to herself. As one of the younger players that evening, Tade would seem a prime recruit for the club as it tries to attract a new generation. But as it stands, the Círculo Social Anahuac only accepts men as full, dues-paying members or socios. Machistas. A policy Tade denounces as machista or sexist. Ramos says the exclusionary policy has always been a feature of the decades-old club, whose slogan is union and chivalry. He also points out that women family members and those invited by socios like Tade have long been welcome to play. But not only can the membership rules change, Ramos says they are going to change, and soon, in no small part as a response to the club's shrinking ranks. That step would require a majority vote among the 90 or so socios. Martina Campos, who has played at the club for years, loves being surrounded by its history. She thinks of the countless players who evolved there and the many she knew who have since passed away. Her team name itself, Piperipao, is an homage to a recently deceased member. Keeping that history and the lanes alive requires a lot of work and attention, she says. But failing to do so would mean losing an important tradition. I'm Murphy Woodhouse in Canaan. Stories, music, songs, and poetry are cherished forms of communication. And there's a group in southern Arizona that's been celebrating these types of artistic expressions for years. As Tony Paniagua reports, the ongoing gathering has become a valuable part of many people's lives. It's the second Thursday of the month at a popular coffee shop in Sierra Vista. The staff stays busy brewing beverages and serving food while a group of visitors prepares its own assorted menu for the night. For the next couple of hours, participants will get a chance to present their creative talent and passion to a live audience. No, there's nothing that I wouldn't do to make you feel mine. The event is called Open Mic and it was founded by Beth Orozco. She teaches literature and creative writing at Cochise College. For several years, I was the director for the Cochise Creative Writing Celebration. And oh, about five years ago, our committee decided we should be doing something in the community to kind of promote the CWC, but also offer authors and musicians in the community something to do. So we chose Open Mic, and uh, it's worked out great. It's a welcome outlet, she says, in this growing community of about 45,000 people. 
U.S. Army Base Fort Huachuca is adjacent to the city. The fort employs thousands of service members and civilian workers who also bring friends or family to the area. Sierra Vista is kind of a transient community because of the military base. And so there's a lot of coming and going here. So authors, musicians, artists, painters, whatever their thing is, tend to come and go. And so it's important for me to have something that's kind of a core thing that people can participate in. We have a four-minute limit, and we just ask that material is original. For Sierra Vista resident Erica Wilson, Open Mic has become a gratifying social outing. It's a permanent item on her agenda. I started to get to know the people that come, and the group of people that come consistently, they are wonderful people, and some of the stuff that they create is just, it's so moving, and it's so relatable, and I just, I love it. Wilson is one of the civilian workers at Fort Huachuca. She also happens to love writing and reading. Sometimes we just need some magic in our lives, so books are the easiest way to get that kind of magic of any type. There's scientific magic, there's just a simple romance kind of thing. It's just, it's a really great escape from reality for a little bit of time. Tonight, she steps up to the mic and reads one of her own poems. So here we go. It is called Songs of Experience, Stars. The stars up there, they burn in the night. They give false hope of fantasies and fairy tales, make you believe in the unseen. Dream of dreams that won't come true, just a ball of fire and rock. Nothing magical or mysterious, just a star. Not the key to the castle or the sword in the stone. Gas, hot air, that's all. They are those stars up there, false hope. And she enjoys the audience. They're so nice and they're so encouraging. I've never heard anything like bad from any of them ever. Building community in more ways than one. Open mic is held at Urbano Coffee Company, which is owned and operated by Jessica Sarignana and her husband. Definitely a lot of work goes into a restaurant, a bar, and now an event center. From its beginnings in 2007, the company has been growing steadily. Years later, after already expanding once, even more space was necessary. After a lot of prayer and searching, we found this location on 4711 uh, Highway 92, and it was originally a hardware shop. They also had pools selling out of here. It was um, called patio pools thousands of square feet suddenly available. And that was in, I believe, 2020, whenever COVID hit, because it was shortly after that we had to um, keep our doors closed because we, we didn't even have a chance to open. It was, it was bad when COVID started. Like millions of other businesses, the company struggled, even though the pandemic also happened to provide some vital time to focus on remodeling. So it took a lot of vision to figure out how we were gonna convert this into a coffee shop. Now, better days have arrived. We've been able to stay afloat. We have now about 30 employees. That makes us feel good that we're giving jobs to that amount of people. Due to the pandemic, Open Mic was held on Zoom for several months. But earlier this year, when the group needed a new venue, founder Beth Orozco began a discussion with business owner Jessica Sariñana. Urbano Coffee Company became the logical destination. Jessica Sariñana says it's been great to host Open Mic and other groups or people. We really enjoy 
being friends with them, knowing a lot of our customers by name and them knowing us, just sharing that experience together. So this has been fun. And I think, I think we're going to make it. You work a lot because you're involved in everything, in every aspect of the business. I try to, you know, put my signature on it. The food is all made from scratch. The drinks are all uh, made from scratch. Even our chocolate, our frap mix, everything is made from scratch. And so people love that. People can see, see that there's todo hecho con amor. Everything's made with love. For Sariñana and Orozco, the personal interactions enrich individuals and the region. People gather, friendships are forged, progress is made. It's a real symbiotic relationship, so um, or maybe a win-win. We have a beautiful venue. Jessica's amazing to work with, and so I think we're bringing her business and spreading the word. And for Orozco, the monthly organizing and preparation is a labor of love. Open mic is free and open to the public. I believe that if everybody does something in their community, whatever it is, we would just be living in a better place, better planet, <laughs> if everybody did community work. So that's kind of my give back. One person, one performance, and maybe one or two coffees at a time. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Tony Paniagua. The August open mic in Sierra Vista is next Thursday, that's the 11th, starting at 6 p.m. Urbano Coffee Shop is located at 4711 South Highway 92. Last year, I interviewed Paul Gold, a Tucsonan who completed a 15-year journey, creating a deluxe book called Bend in the Wash, the Rancho Linda Vista Artist Community. It documented the history of a colony of artists, creatives, and free thinkers who made their own settlement in the desert south of Oracle. This summer, Paul Gold has published a catalog of the vivid, almost photorealistic nature charcoal drawings by Rancho Linda Vista alumni Michael Moore. Although radio can't convey the beauty of these images, we have a few posted on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. But I asked Michael Moore to read a few of his diary entries from the back of the book to give us some insight into his life and philosophy. There's a chronology at the end that Paul insisted I put in here, my life story. So this is, it says, uh, grew up in Helena, Montana, a doctor's kid. My father was Helena's first pediatrician, the only children's doctor in the 40s and 50s back in the day when doctors made house calls, took phone calls at home, accepted bushels of corn for payment, and held free clinics for families with no money. Like all parents, mine thought I was very artistic, and although I was not, I believed them, and so my career was set. Uh, it says here, 1957 to 1960, God, I must be old. Active duty in the U.S. Navy, largely spent aboard a repurposed destroyer escort vessel patrolling the eastern seaboard during the Cold War. Useful job skills included servicing marine steam turbines and peripheral machinery, procedures for dropping depth charges on Russian submarines, and following orders from people who weren't very smart. Uh, 
we've got uh, 1960 to 64, uh, earned a BA degree from the University of Arizona. I met Andy Rush there in 1960 when he and Lynn Schroeder ran the print department. There was a very good faculty at the UA Art Department and solid emphasis on drawing the human figure. I loved college, majored in unclothed women and art history, and minored in philosophy and French and Mandarin and a smorgasbord of other interesting stuff. I'm going to say this one because I say this outrageous thing that nobody believes. Uh, this was 1968 to 72. Thanks to the support of former professors, I was accepted into the University of Arizona MFA program. My difficulty with painting was a deficiency in color perception, moderate red-green color blindness, so that drawing in values with black and white media became my best option. More figure drawing, more models, some great teachers, among them Douglas Denniston, Charles Littler, Mel Sanger, and the omniscient historian Bob Quinn. Bruce McGrew had just joined the faculty and was on the graduate committee that conferred my MFA degree in 1972. I was briefly married to J. Edgar Hoover's boss's kid sister. Approaching my mid-30s, it was time to leave college and enter the world where nobody cares about your degrees or your scholastic honors or your GPA, and you get by just making yourself useful. Okay, jump in with this. Uh, this is 1979 to 1980. Art is not the road to riches, but construction work will buy gas and food. Thanks to supportive friends in Reno, I became a pretty good cement finisher. During this confusing period, I toggled between socking away money making garage floors in Reno and making charcoal drawings in Oracle until I needed more money. Going back and forth with this was fun, but clearly going nowhere. Thanks to my camper and friends in Montana, Nevada, and Arizona, I got around a lot. While in Reno, I joined some thespians who had scored a National Endowment for the Arts grant to do street theater across rural Nevada. Juggling had captured my attention at the time, so my alter persona, Chuckles the Juggling Clown, was busy entertaining kids when my application for a halftime teaching position at the U of A Art Department was unexpectedly approved, meaning I could finally make money in Arizona. So my friend June Reddig and I left Nevada and became residents at Rancho Linda Vista. What with one thing and another, uh, the teaching gig was neither fun nor secure. June remained at Linda Vista, and I moved to Tucson to start a graphic design business with my talented ex-wife Mary Lou Williams, sadly recently deceased. This is 1980 to 1989. Armory Park Graphics was where I learned to make a living. I was a boss, an employee, a janitor, a bookkeeper, a bill collector. I started out painting signs, then screen-printed signs, then, thanks to the tutelage of Stephen Romanello, brochure design, old-fashioned paste-ups for pre-press cameras, followed by screen-printed art posters and displays, product photography, illustration, and with the advent of personal computers and page layout programs, typography and print-ready materials of all kinds. Having become useful, I was still a better backroom guy than a businessman, and so was living hand-to-mouth until I was saved by the liposuction industry. 1989 to 2005, I had been doing freelance work for a surgical supply company for several years, making direct mail pieces, displays, and journal ads. 
And this is where I met a man named Byron Economiti, a Tasmanian devil from West Texas who ran a department for this larger company. Byron eventually became disenchanted with him and left to start his own company named predictably Byron Medical, selling supplies to plastic and reconstructive surgeons and their somewhat less dignified cousins, the cosmetic surgeons. I left as well and applied myself to making Byron a trade show star, which kept me busy for over 16 years while he gobbled up market share. It was my window onto the amoral, creatively acquisitive, often ruthless and always hilarious world of commerce and human insanity. Not at all a waste of my time. And it paid for the remote, secluded, beautiful upper desert home I have enjoyed since my retirement over 15 years ago. 2005 to the present, dropped off here by the river of life, I shifted my attention to stonework around my house in Oracle. Had I sold more charcoal drawings, I would not have had such a storage problem and perhaps would have done more. But the lure of mortared stone was the opposite of ephemeral charcoal dust on paper. In 200 years, these walls might still be here and the charcoals won't. Solidity is apparently the point of this phase of things. The point of art is the directive to eat, sleep, and make stuff. Salads, birdhouses, rock walls, charcoal drawings, whatever, even if we're not really accomplishing anything. End of biography. <laughs> I could go on to the future where Michael Moore died unexpectedly. <laughs> Paul Gold, can you tell us a little bit about the book and how people can get it? Well, this book is available on my new website, um, paulgoldbooks.com, which is a, a, a new site um, dedicated to just that. Locally, you can get it at the Tucson Museum of Art Museum Store. Uh, Deadwood Framing and Gallery of Food has some copies. My guests were artist Michael Moore and author and publisher Paul Gold. Moore's collection, Drawings, from the PMG Artist Catalog Series, is available now from TubeCat LLC. Nichelle Nichols, whose greatest fame will always be associated with Star Trek, died last Saturday. Almost every time that Nichols was interviewed or written about, the story was told of how she had planned to leave Star Trek after its first season in 1967. Nichols had just about turned in her letter of resignation to the show's creator, Gene Roddenberry, when over the weekend she attended an NAACP event. There she was told that a big fan of Star Trek wanted to meet her, and that fan turned out to be Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Disappointed by the news of her impending departure, King urged Nichols to reconsider. He said that because Lieutenant Nyota Uhura was a commissioned officer, part of the Enterprise chain of command, she offered hope to people of color and to women that the future could be a better place. Nichelle Nichols' character symbolized a core value of civil rights. This convinced her to stay, but there was another major contribution that Nichols would make to history about a decade later. A letter-writing campaign from Star Trek fans to the White House of President Gerald Ford and NASA resulted in changing the name of the prototype space shuttle from Columbia to Enterprise. The cast of Star Trek started being invited to do space exploration, public events, and PR. Just a few weeks ago, I interviewed Ryan Britt, a science fiction journalist and the author of Set Phasers on Stun, how the making and remaking of Star Trek changed the world. He'll tell us what happened next. Nichelle Nichols had become friendly with some NASA folks because of these sort of publicity appearances. She was friends with Jesko Putkamer, 
a uh, NASA scientist who did a bunch of Star Trek conventions. And she was also friendly with a guy named John Yardley, uh, who was the head of NASA's manned space missions at that time. What's interesting is that she just looked around and was like, okay, I don't see this Star Trek future happening with all of my white guy cronies at NASA. You know, she was buddies with these guys. And so then she was kind of like, all right, you guys like Star Trek? I'm paraphrasing here, but it's kind of like she's like, let's make it happen for real. Yeah. Because the space shuttle program was happening and there were very few minority astronauts or female applicants. You know, she set out to do that, something about that. Now, she'd already had a company at that time called Women in Motion. And the documentary by Todd Thompson that sort of documents this is called Woman in Motion. And that was a 2020 documentary that was then released widely on Paramount Plus in 2021. And I interviewed Todd for the book and for some articles about the documentary. And, you know, I asked him the same question you're kind of asking me is like, why was this not a bigger deal in the cultural memory? And even in her memoir, Beyond Uhura, Michelle Nichols like doesn't even spend a whole chapter on this. It's like a couple pages on this massive recruitment drive that she did for NASA to ensure that there would be more diversity in the space program. And it literally happened because of her. Uh, Ron McNair, you know, uh, Sally Ride, these people probably would not have been in NASA at the time. Uh, Judith Resnick was part of that, you know, at the time that she was recruiting, they just wouldn't have been part of the space program. And so... Yeah. And sadly, those names you mentioned were all on board the Challenger. Which is also something that, you know, Woman in Motion gets into that aspect of it. But, you know, then Mae Jemison is inspired by that, you know, and then is a NASA astronaut on the space shuttles later. That's a direct outgrowth of that. Michelle Nichols did astronaut training. You know, she was capable of landing the space shuttle in the simulator. Shatner didn't fly the Blue (laughs) Origin capsule. You know what I mean? Nothing against Shatner, you know, but there was a real putting your money where your mouth is with Michelle. She wasn't a figurehead. And she told them if after her recruitment drive, it was still a lily white astronaut corps that she was going to sue them. You know what I mean? She was like, (laughs) I'll sue you if this ends up, you know, imagine that. The joke I made is like, you can't imagine a more one-to-one. It's like, what if Julia Louis-Dreyfus became vice president in real life? You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Like that's kind of what it's like with Michelle learning how to fly a space shuttle and um, doing all that recruitment. It's a tremendous story, and I really i am glad you spent the time that you did on it. Um, you also mentioned a detail about a meeting she had with President Obama. Yeah, just that Obama like kind of took her aside and said that he had had a crush on her when he was you know, growing up watching Star Trek. <laughs> Obama is cagey about going on the record about his Star Trek fandom, and yet any opportunity he had to talk about Spock or Star Trek, he did. People always would kind of compare him to a Vulcan. Um, And I think that there's something to that. You know, I think that Obama's uh, love of Michelle, but also his love of Spock, sort of informs his personality. Mm -hmm. Um, I can't imagine Obama having the exact personality he has without Star Trek. (laughs) You know, like, can't imagine it. I got to speak to Nichelle Nichols just once at a Star Trek convention in Phoenix in the late 1990s. I told her that as a fan of the great jazz composer Duke Ellington, I really wished that I'd been able to see her sing with his band. It would have been a spectacle, she said. And thank you, because no one ever asks me about my singing anymore. I'll be back, though it takes forever, Nichelle Nichols died on July 30th 
in Silver City, New Mexico, at age 89. She is missed by fans across the known universe. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's news director is Christopher Conover. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Production assistance by Leah Britton. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Thank you to Broadway in Tucson for their support of Arizona Spotlight.